Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with A.D. Thomason. A.D. is the author of Permission to be Black, which released this February through InterVarsity Press. Uh, A.D., welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Now, I, I want to let's, let's start with some foundations. Uh, who is A.D. Thomason, and how does that answer come into play with why you wrote Permission to be Black? Hmm. I would say, who is A.D.? I would say A.D. is a person of vast experience uh, by fortune, and some would say grace. I wouldn't say by my might. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and my highest aspiration was to work at the factory, car factory, and uh, to give me a bigger vision than I had for myself. And that ranges from Palestine, Greece, Sudan, Nicaragua, you know, to the northern rivers of California, whitewater rafting, uh, and going to various schools from art college to Bible school. So I would say A.D. is vast. He appreciates culture, people, and he stands for uh, mercy and understanding people's stories. Mm, That's so good. What was it that led you on that journey like what was the what was the moment for you that made you realize that you could grasp all of those things yeah so it's twofold man um i'll say it's three defining moments one i grew up hey get a good job save your money mm-hmm. you know live the best life that you could and so my summer year after my freshman year in college i worked at the detroit pistons courtesy of my uncle and so it was a great year we did a park program trying to re- renew parks in the inner city of Detroit I made a lot of money for myself and when I got back to school I asked other friends what they did and you know this is high evangelical culture and a lot of them went overseas and that was foreign to me they went to other countries they did what they call missions and stuff like that and and you could see that they had such a joy and so I was like, man, and they're like, what did you do? I was like, well, I worked for the Pistons. It was cool. I made money, but I, I didn't see the chalk off. So the next year, next time I said, you know what, let me, let me see what's out there. And I explored many opportunities and I went over to Palestine, you know, oddly enough where things are having problems. Now mm-hmm. I, I play basketball in Ramallah, Palestine. And that, that opened, I mean, that summer I said it was a catalyst. Of dethroning stigma and prejudice. And I would say some of propaganda. I mean, you know, people can control the narrative of, of another people group. You just can't, good or bad. And so going over there, all I remember knowing and seeing is that Palestinians blew up buses and threw rocks at the police and things like that. And when I got over there, it was one of the most loving people groups that I've been around personally, subjectively, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because I play basketball or whatever, but it just it just changed the narrative that I only knew, you know, through media. And that made me question, like, well, what 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 else is there out in the world that's beautiful and great and glorious that I could experience? And so it was on from there, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What was it that led you to writing Permission to Be Black? And then you also have a prequel audiobook that you did. 
confessions of an ex-evangelical. So those two are those two things are kind of tied together. Uh, what what led yeah. you to to that message? Yeah, I, I I think I was yeah I was finishing counseling for the first time, which is a taboo in my culture, African American mm-hmm. culture, inner city culture, and. I was coming back from counseling and I felt that my counselor gave me what I would call cheat codes, you know, secrets, if you will. He wasn't telling me that they were cheat codes or secrets, but I saw them as such because they were so wise. They were so, I felt like I was getting ahead in life and my people didn't know about any of these, you know, as Mm -hmm. far as like, you know, how to tell your story, how to release yourself, how to understand your wrestles through your birth order, asking your parents, you know, uh, or your mother, what was going on during my birth? Like, were you stressed? Were you joyful? And that tying in to what type of child you would come out to. Just all these things, just cheat codes, how to get a handle on life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I started looking at I go, man, why haven't African-Americans at a diaspora, in a, you know, had this? And I go, oh, slavery, right? You got this <laughs> slavery piece. And you got this Jim Crow piece. Then you... You know, you got this civil rights piece. You got this red line piece. And so as I started trekking through the errors, reverse engineering, I realized we we weren't considered human. And then we didn't have a freedom to process our humanity and traumas and hurts and ills because of the objectification, right? Mm-hmm. And so out comes the, you know, the burden in the writing permission to be black because we've, we've legally then withheld that permission to express our humanity. Mm-hmm. And then now in, in, in uh, 2019 is when I wrote it, but obviously 2021 is being released. So, you know, we need the permission to, to be fully human, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, that hasn't been something that's been granted to us. Mm-hmm. How have you seen, you said you wrote this book in 2019. Obviously, yeah. a lot has happened since then. How, yeah. how what what have you if you were writing this book now in 2021 yeah. what would you add to it yeah no that's good man i would add the the immediate thing is is the george floyd verdict that yeah. has come out man so i would add that and then honestly i would add the the, the unearthing of the tensions between african um descendants of slaves that ate us and then um I say those of African origin in America, like, you know, like Nigerian or Eritrean Jamaican. Mm-hmm. And there's been a you know, um a tension. I don't know if you you've seen that, but there's been a tension to where let's just say in movies the African descendants of slaves are frustrated because they they feel like they're being overlooked for Africans of the, you know, United Kingdom or Africans of the Nigerian descent. And they're saying, wait, 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 our slavery opened up the door for you all. And there was a time where, you know, the Nigerians or the UK blacks, if you will, weren't favorable to the African-American black. Mm -hmm. So it's like, now you're taking the very job that our, you know, object objectification and oppression opened up. <laughs> some would go so far as to say, and they know historically, some of you all's predecessors sold, sold my predecessors into slavery. 
Right. You're right. So it's just it's it's this whole tension of asking that question. Okay, what what is the black experience? Is it the African American black experience? Is it the black experience in America? Is it black skin despite being in America? So I would probably tease those things out uh, more because it's it's a it's a real thing now. It's bubbling yeah. over. Yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of intersectionality there because obviously yeah. the culture is. It is so different. The the historical background is so different. Uh, you're yeah. writing specifically about the Black American experience and yeah. how it's rooted in trauma. That's a major theme of the book, and that's historical yeah. trauma. Uh, that's yeah. that's present present realities of injustice. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, the the first few chapters, especially, you write about how that trauma makes a lot of people put on a false self and they're never really being true to who they are. And yeah. uh, some of that is is self-preservation and some of that is yeah. majority culture saying this is the way we want you to be. This is the this is the acceptable version of you that we're willing to see. How do you begin to undo that as an individual when you still have those systems of oppression still in place. Yeah, no, that's good. So the, the the biggest lens or delineation I tell people they have to make or they're not going to be able to do it is you have to delineate between um, human freedom and fulfillment juxtaposed to earthly success. If you tie earthly success to your humanity, you can't do it, right? Because that's the reason why you had, the, you know, the minstrel shows or the step infected or, you know, the sandbows. It's because they had to, quote, unquote, tap dance to get this money in public, but then they're another person in private, right? And the way you undo it is you can't tie your results to majority cultures offering. And that's the problem. When you tie your results to majority cultures offerings, well, you're going to be at the women end. So, you know, if you got to be a, uh, you know, a nice Negro who wears button downs and tucks his pants in and says, because you're, you believe your success is tied to that. And when I say success, I'm talking about tangible results versus being the fullest version of you despite the results. Right. And a lot mm-hmm. of people, that's going to be a wrestle for them. Because for me, humanity is based on breathing, eating, shelter, and providing for your family. Anything outside of that, to me, is the glorious icing. But we, we, have, we have said, like, hey, it has to be to the level of, you know, a Jay-Z or the level of a Warren Buffett. And in an ideal world, sure, I understand that. But we're not in an ideal world. Like, you know, the the world has been colonized, uh, you know, starting out of, well, we go all the way back to the Portuguese, then go to the Dutch, then go to the British, right? That's the tri- triangle mm-hmm. slave trade. So we, we the world has been colonized by those three. And this is why, you know, in African countries, they speak French here, and then, you know, right, they have right. the UK accent over there, and then obviously the 13 colonies over here from the British. So... You know, from a from a historical and earthly standpoint, the majority culture is controlled by those of European descent. That's just 
facts. And if we want to go even further, you go apartheid. That's justice in over in South Africa, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you 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 have to undo it by asking yourself what is most important to me. And I'll be honest with you, for most people, myself included, they're going to be told through schools and through parents that tangible goods and progression through the European race is what's most good. So if you have to temper down or alter or code switch to get that, then that's what you do. And I'm saying you have permission not to be that anymore. And there's something bigger beyond this world. We're made for something bigger beyond this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so hard because people are just in survival mode. You know, you hear yeah. all this talk about being an integrated person, processing past traumas. It's so yeah. hard to get your mind around that when, you know, you're just trying to to survive, to, to have a job, pay rent. Um for for those people who are like, man, this sounds like a great journey. I would love to go on it. I just don't feel like I have the energy, mental, physical, spiritual, to start that. Then what are like what what are like the small beginnings that someone can take to reclaim their identity? Yeah. So the first thing I would say that a lot of people do that's easy, despite results, is that we internalize. Meaning if we have an emotion, a thought, or something that bothers us, good or bad, you know, if you like something, you don't want to come across as too desperate, you may internalize the joy, right? If something frustrates you and you don't want to seem like it, you care about it too much, you internalize it. You don't see, you bury it. But a book called Body Keeps the Score is like when you, when you bury it and you don't talk about it, it actually affects who you are. And so what I say is that you can have a daily practice of if something hurts you in a non-escalating, threatening way. If something hurts you, you say it like, hey, when that happened, that hurt. Hey, I, actually, I really like this. I like it when you do this. I like it, you know, so you, you talk about the joy. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that there are what I call micro places that you have killed in your uh, soul. are called, you know, our emotions are the taste buds of the soul. We've killed so many of these micro taste buds that we think is normal to internalize, mm-hmm. right? So you got that. Um, two, if grandparents or parents are alive, ask them, ask them about, you know, what was happening during the, uh, your pregnancy, you know, while you were in the womb, what was going on? Ask them, Hey, start talking to them about their, their life. And if parents around, there's an aunt, uncle, sibling, there's somebody that could tell you, you know, um, ask about, you know, birth order, only child, you know, first, second, third, last. If you, if you're the, you know, the, the last of 18, that's no matter how you process things or how you see life. So what I tell people is I, the life is a fight, you know, no matter what you believe, life isn't ideal, right? And we know it's not ideal because, you know, we got the drug cartel and we got sex trafficking and, you know, we got people cheating. We know life is not ideal. So life is a fight. I'm trying to help people know how to fight, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because if you don't know how to fight, it's going to be a, you're just going to get hit and you don't know how to put your hands up. You don't have gloves and it's going to feel like it's rigged. Right. And that's where the cheat codes come in. I, I don't want you to feel like you live a life and it's rigged against you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you write about in the book is that embracing your black identity doesn't make you less Christian. And I think that can be a thing because 
the Christian faith in America, uh, evangelicalism in particular, has been very colonized. It is very white. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is, you know, there is an association between, I mean, not just white culture, but, you know, outright white nationalism uh, and yeah. aspects of evangelicalism. So you have that. Uh, I have a couple questions on this. My first one is going to re- relate to um, how how do you you I, I mean I speak as a white person. How how do you feel like black the black experience sort of correlates with the Christian faith, particularly the way in which it's been Europeanized? Yeah. No, that's a good question. <clears throat> you know, I think I think it's 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 been a journey, if I'm honest. Um, if we're talking about here in the West, you know, 13 colonies into the United States, it's been a journey. If that's our starting point, so if that's our starting point, you know, there's a book called Slavery in the Churches of America by Lester B. Scherer from from 1618 to no 1619 to 1819. Anyway, he explores how when slaves and freedmen started to quote unquote become Christians, how whites controlled the majority narrative of what they could, what churches they could go to, what they could and couldn't participate in. And he makes the statement that <clears throat> how whites allow, you know, air quotes allow blacks to be citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but not citizens in their churches. Right. So you got that lane. But then he also explores that uh, the European understanding of Christ. Yes, it was dominant, but there were those blacks who rejected the European Jesus because they already knew what they were called the Jesus of the East Mm -hmm. or the Jesus pre the Atlantic or the Jesus pre the Pacific because they knew that Jesus as without hypocrisy. And a lot of people don't talk about that as well. And that, and that's, that shows you how colonized the, the world is, is they still hold Europeans understand of Jesus as Christianity, right? And, 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 and if you think about it, that doesn't exist in a lot of things, right? If I said to you, like, hey, man, I want to buy you some gym shoes, you may say, what brand? Nike, Reebok, Coma, right? But when somebody says Christianity, they all, they only think of one brand. Like it's like you know that's that's like saying there's only one type of hamburger you can go buy. Well, we know that's not true. It's, it's many versions. Somebody will say, "Well, that's denominations." Nope, because even in the denominations, people still speak Christianity as one monopolized brand. Mm-hmm. And what Lester B. Sure is making an argument in his book, and another guy Vince Bantu uh, in his book called "Multitude of Nations." He says there were believers in, you know, Egypt, Ethiopia during the time of the, the Reformation, uh, you know, during the time of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and those cats. He goes, Europeans just had the loudest megaphone to people believe this was the only narrative at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a point to, like, I talk to about my one friend where we talk for six hours and I say, now there there were believers longer, you know, that existed before Constantine. I say I always tell them I say, yeah, let's let's read the Bible with a map and let's play location game, <laughs> you know. 
Where is Egypt? Okay, it's right there. Where's the, you know, Sinai? Okay, it's right here, you know. So it's like Africa, you know, what we call Middle East, you know, um, today. And I go, where is Turkey? Where is all these places? And I go, so you let me know <laughs> when you read the scriptures when we get to Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, we don't even get to Europe until Paul is in chains. Yeah. And they're in the act, <laughs> right? So I, I joke with him. I said, "Well, I said, well, what was the call in the in the book Acts? You know, it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the earth." I go, "Okay, tell me what Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria." I go, "They're all in this region, right? This this Eastern African region." I go, "Christ, he went to Egypt. That's Africa, right?" So I, I show him that, and, and it's interesting when people read those scriptures with a map, they realize, "Wow." how something they even been in the placement of where all these mm-hmm. things have happened. Right. And mm-hmm. so, and then here's the, when I land the plane, I go, now let me, let me give you the biggest prestige and argument of them all. He goes, what? I go, they said to the uttermost parts of the earth, you know, the United States, I go, yeah, but we've convinced y'all that y'all the uttermost parts of the earth. Silent. Yeah. I go, you see what I'm saying? And so you have to show people the original intent and why these things are written. Yeah, I, I remember hearing the story of a pastor who, had, who was visiting um, the Israeli-Palestine area. I don't remember exactly where he was at in the Middle East at the time. But he was talking to a a pastor, in, you know, indigenous to that region. And he was like, oh, when did, when did you come to Christ? And the the pastor kind of looked at me and he was like, I'm, I'm a 10th generation pastor of this church. And my family has been a pastor here since, you know, the you know, Middle Ages, you know, since the 14, 1500s, right. hundreds of years, his family had been in that region. Mm-hmm. And the assumption of this pastor, white American pastor, was, oh, he, he, he must be first generation. He must have just come to faith. You know, because of the work of missionaries, right. and you know, and it's like, no, is the right. is the exact opposite. You know, his family has been pastoring that that church longer than there has been a United States, and he, uh, on, so he was like writing like that's a you know, it was a mind blowing moment that he was like, I you know didn't consciously realize how I had this Eurocentric version of faith, and it really led him on a journey to, you know, to sort of deconstruct that. And yeah. under you know understanding that it's it's helpful um, it, it it's helpful for Black Americans because if you think of if you think of Christianity as being mm-hmm. white evangelicalism, there is not a whole lot there for. It, 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 it's you know there, there's there's not a there's there's not there's no, not yeah, what you, you know what I, I mean. <laughs> yeah. Just trying to yeah. figure out how to word this. And you're it, right. It's just, it's just not. No, you're it, right. It's not. Um, why would you want that? You know, if I'm looking at yeah. this, um, why if, if you know, I, I understand why my people, why white people, look at American evangelicalism. And they're like, yeah, I can get on board with this. It's because they have the power, uh, politically and spiritually, to to sort of control right. and lead. But there is no room 
outside of majority culture in evangelicalism today. And it opens up when you, when, when you can see that the Christian faith is so much more than white Christianity. Uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It, it opens you up and brings you closer to who Christ is. And uh, you, you write in the book, uh, there, there was a quote, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have the book out, uh, that Jesus did not come and incarnate himself into the majority culture, but into the minority mm-hmm. culture, into an oppressed people group, and that matters. Can you, can you expound on that a little bit for me? Yeah, man, that's probably one of my favorite, I would say, revelations. I do believe God gave that to me, so I don't want to act like I'm so smart to come up with that. Um, but yeah, so I've been taking this journey of understanding the scriptures through a messianic lens. The simple way is just saying that I believe that the, that the scriptures were inspired by God, given to a people through their language and culture. And unless we understand that language and culture, we're going to miss a significant understanding of what he wants us to get out of the revelation. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the Jews, they were expecting a Messiah. And I believe that Yeshua, Jesus is that Messiah. So that's what that means. So on that journey, they're big. They're just big on asking the tangible nuanced questions of the story. Whereas in the West, we're more about the theological understanding of the scriptures so we're not big on narrative we're just big on theology so if 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 uh, you know goliath has a shield or a beam or a sword and it describes it that's key to them right so when you talk about yeshua jesus and it talks about him um being a nazarati and a nazarite born in Bethlehem, right? Same place where or they said of David, the Bethlehemite, son of Jesse. So when it talks about all these things, they don't just mention that happenstance, but we glaze over that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when it you know, talks about Rome, you know, and if you look at Rome, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and then um, looking at the quote-unquote Jewish people, all those things matter for them tangibly in telling the story and it's interesting we're so theological we don't even talk about the details of the story and i'm not talking about yeah he carried his cross and it was tough and he sweat drops and blood. i'm not talking about that i'm talking about down to the clothing like him wearing uh he would have wore deep seats right which are tassels and tassels comes out of numbers, and it says you should wear these details to remember the mitzvah, the commandment to God. So Christ would have wore tassels, and the lady woman didn't touch the fringe of his cloak. She touched the tassels. That was the tassels, the zitzios, that then that's what it was. She would have touched and got healed. So having that put in me, I started to read the scripture and go like, hold on, wait a second. If Yeshua is Jewish. The Jews weren't the majority people. They were a minority people. The Romans, well, okay, Rome, that, that's European descent. Jews aren't of European descent. Hold on. And then it says he was, he wasn't just a Jewish person. He was from Nazareth. Well, that, that's a town of 300, 500 if you're being liberal. Oh, this, oh, this wasn't a major city. So you start knocking all this stuff down. 
and you go, and, and we never asked this question. We just thought, yeah, he incarnated himself, and, you know, he wants to take the form of men. But it's not to just the form of men. We make it so generic. Mm-hmm. Why didn't he take the form of man in Roman skin? You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> he did. He chose to come in, in, in this skin. That matters. So I, I, I say all that to say is that it actually it would make the story, because I'm a storyteller, it would make the story more potent in people's eyes if they knew that if they if they were if they were trained to see those details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have I've I've told people that this podcast is for people who are uncomfortably evangelical, and we have a lot of uh, listeners who I think yeah. and uh, I'm I'm projecting onto my listeners a little bit here, so they can tell me if I'm wrong. Um, there's, there's yeah. still maybe holding on to the term because it's comfortable yeah. because it's part of their upbringing. But when they look yeah. at evangelicalism, uh, over the fi- past five years, especially, but even going back further than that, historically, it's not something that they want to align with anymore, or, or maybe they still yeah. find themselves aligning theologically, but not practically. Um, yeah. you, you were a part of evangelicalism and yeah. you've decided to leave that. What, yeah. what was it for you that made you to formally say, I, I can't associate myself with this any longer. I'm going to call myself an ex evangelical. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll speak it twofold, you know, to the listeners and just asking a question for myself. So in Mark 7, Christ talked about raising up the traditions of man to make them equal with the law of God. You end up nullifying the law of God. And so when I looked at the history of evangelicalism and the people associated with evangelicalism and stuff, they, I would just say they just let ride. Uh, you know, they let slavery ride. You know, you go back to the Puritans, Puritans would have been evangelical, Protestants would have been evangelicals. Um, you got George Whitfield, people talking about how great of a preacher he was. But I go, you use slaves to build your orphanage. If that's not the biggest oxymoron, mm-hmm. you, you orphan kids to build an orphanage, right? Um, you know, people like Edwards owned slaves. People like Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. Uh, people like John Calvin allowed Michael Sabatis to be burned at the stake. And I'm just, I'm just looking at that. And then I'm looking at how we treat people today, uh, how we tr- treat people in evangelicalism, no mercy, uh, venom, you know, for people who don't hold your beliefs. And I'm going back and I'm looking at how Yeshua treated people. I go, he just didn't pre- treat people like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm just, I go, this is not how you treat your neighbor. This is not how you love God, right? If you say you love God, yet you hate your neighbor, uh, then you don't love God. This is mm-hmm. First John. James, you say, peace, be warm, and be well fed, and if that you have faith. It says it's not true with you, right? Your faith is yeah. dead. So I could, I, I could, you can't tell me somebody's a product at a time, and they're saying, peace, be warm, and be well fed. We'll pray for you, slave, while mm-hmm. keeping them in slavery, while selling them children, while, you know, I was reading something recently that I read during my doctoral study, and they, you know, they used to have, how to keep a slave during the church announcements, right? Like if they run away, you got to castrate them. If this happens, you got to sell the, ch- the child. 
And so these are not products of the time. These are just, it's another gospel. It's another doctrine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's what I always, I always press upon people. I go, you would rather hold on to the label of evangelical than drop the label and just say, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. So I go, you fight for that label. That label is not in the Bible. You could, you could talk about the term that came up and yada, yada, and certain things that's not the Bible that have come up. Sure, fine. You want to make the argument. I'm not arguing for a label. I'm arguing for my citizenship in the kingdom of God. And I know that kingdom believers, citizen of, citizens of Yeshua, Jesus' kingdom, they do not live a, a, a hypocritical lifestyle. They do not live dichotomous. They do not try to put themselves first. They do not try to retain retain power. They do not see Rome or the United Kingdom or Germany or wherever you sit. They do not see the ruling government as God's agent, right, of change. Mm-hmm. And we and we use all this stuff because, you know, we may bring up, well, God used Cyrus. Yeah, he used one king, <laughs> you know. Well, they, you know, they were in Babylonian captivity. Okay, that's two. But the Roman Republic, God, he decimated that thing, right? He died mm-hmm. on the cross. And eventually, you know, in 70 AD, he came through and decimated. So Rome is no longer in existence as it was then. So we know that God didn't use the majority culture as the agent. We go back to Egypt. He did not use Pharaoh to disciple the people of God. The only thing he used Pharaoh was to take the cows and the goats and the gold. You know, like, that, that, that's how he used it. But, but you got so many people, you probably have believers there. It's like, well, you know, if if the Lord don't move through Pharaoh, it ain't going to get done. No, mm-hmm. I'll raise up Moses. Right? Yeah. So I just, I started to see all these things mount up. And then that, that Yeshua said, and this is a Hebraic thing. It's, it's the word, I'm getting a little technical here. There's a Hebraic word called a Hendiades. Hendiades. Hendiades means you can't have one without the other, right? So it's like saying, hey, I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but I'm just going to use peanut butter, right? It's a simple one, but you, you don't have a sandwich, right? Um, another idea is like trying to have purple. You can't have purple with blue only or red only. You need an equal mixture of both. So when we get to why I, I truly stepped away, I go, oh, evangelicals, y'all, are, y'all want to say someone had great theology, even if their life didn't match. And in the Hebraic culture, that's a false hendiety. You cannot see God rightly and live him out wrongly. They would say then you don't see him rightly. Yeah. That's that's the Hindiety. And so we allow people to separate a non fleshed out life, though they can theorize and articulate what a life looks like. And what is Yeshua? And then people go, then you don't follow me. Right. Right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I saw that as the norm, and I just thought, you know what? I'm out to actually practice what Jesus modeled and taught than to talk about it and not live it. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that are sort of on that on that cusp that are that are trying to figure out what is for them what is culture and what is Christian mm-hmm. and how to divide those two. Uh, just yeah. a couple more questions for you in closing, and I want to talk about yeah. I want to talk about racial reconciliation. Um, yeah. I'm I'm white. Most of the people mm-hmm. who listen to this podcast are white. 
And I yeah. know a lot of white people who are becoming engaged. They're having their eyes opened to racial injustice and they're wanting to speak up. I, mean, I think there was a point in 2020 where like all all like the top 10 nonfiction books on the New York Times bestsellers list all had to do with mm -hmm. racial reconciliation. And mm -hmm. I have seen. So what what I have seen some white people do is is they're just they're rushing in and they're like, hello, we're the white people and we're here to help. And historically, mm -hmm. that has not been a very comforting statement to minority people groups. Um, right. What what do you wish that white people would do? And what do you see white activists doing that you wish they wouldn't do? That's a good question. Um, I wish, I wish that white believers across the globe were big into history as much as they say they are into the scriptures and use history and the scriptures to bring current reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is you can't, the word reconcile is a historically is a mathematical finance term, right? You got to reconcile mm -hmm. the account. Something's off. And in the places that I've been, you reconcile accounts by looking at past transactions, right? I don't reconcile the account. If I get a check on Wednesday, I don't reconcile the account just on what happened on Wednesday. I got to look at the past transactions. And so I would say, you know, if we just going on that triangle, uh, you know, from Portuguese, Dutch, Europe, and obviously America's just an extension of Europe. We don't, we want to, we want to look forward. And there are too many instances in the scriptures from Cain killing Abel. And it says your brother blood cries out from the ground that needed to be reconciled. Uh, Zacchaeus realizing that he defrauded people fourfold. And he said that, I mean, he defrauded people and he was willing to pay fourfold. That needed to be reconciled. Um, to Josiah, who was a king, and he looked, found, they found the book of the law. And, and this young teenager reconciled the accounts of Israel. If y'all read this story, they reconciled the accounts of Israel in their idolatry, idolatry for over 370 years. He went back 370 years and said, how long have we allowed the idols and the Asherah and temple prostitutes to make their home? 370 years? No, we're going to make, uh, we're going to make sacrifice and recompense with God. He didn't go like, well, I didn't set up the idol. You know, well, my ancestors didn't do that. <laughs> That's not what he did. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like, if I'm being honest, and I'm I'm talking very prophetic to white folks, there's they they can be so pick and choose on what they want to flex out from the scriptures. Well, I didn't do that. I go, you didn't die on the cross and resurrect, but you take that <laughs> blessing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, what, right. which one yeah. is it? <laughs> yeah. Which one is this? Uh, yeah, but I'm gonna walk in the blood of Christ. So okay. And it it it's it's tough 
But if you believe that you're a citizen, and this is why this is why I would challenge most believers, not just white and black. It's tough, but if you believe you're a citizen, sacrificing this world is not a loss. And this leads me to my next statement, and I'm a qualified from the scriptures. I'll tell it to you from a story. I remember I was talking to one of the leaders in South Africa, wealthy guy, believer. Let's just call him a believer. I'll say he's a believer because he said he's a believer. He's giving me all this stuff about what his family's done and the conferences that they do and the churches they run. He's of Afrikaans descent. And if you know anything about, right, the apartheid, land was just stolen and taken, right? So he was like, man, what what can I do to just help this reconciliation, this racial reconciliation? I looked at him because I knew the story. I looked at him and I said, if you're not willing to give the land back that your family lives on right now because it was stolen, no, you can't repurpose it. If you're not willing to give the land back, give the finances back and become poor, then you're not talking about reconciliation. And here's the problem. It's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because a lot of people are going to say, well, why, why, do, why do I? And here's what's funny. A lot of, and this is where I say the pick and choose comes in. Well, why, why do I got to give up? And why do I got to become discomforted? Why do I got to? And I go, man, that sounds opposite of the Savior you say you follow. You preach tough about, man, he became poor for our sake. You preach tough about the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I commanded and model. Well, one of the things he commanded and model is becoming the least. Right? He didn't say that in message. He said that in action. Right? So these, that's what I'm saying. We like to theorize Jesus, but when it comes to it, when it comes to it, we don't want to do it. And 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 I said I said it to him, and I said it to people, if you listening, you want to see a move of God happen, the first of its kind across the world, see the whites who are connected to the slave past in the church start to give land back, start to pay reparations and say, we're going to do a tangible, because God is a God of tangibility. He didn't, he didn't uh, theorize coming to the cross. He didn't say, I'm going to come down, give a good message, go back to heaven. He literally physically got pummeled, died, and resurrected. So I go, if there's not a physical element to your gospel, you have another gospel, right? Yeah. And I will qualify this on the Bible. Hebrews 11. We love to talk about how some put armies to flight and shut the mouths of lions, they on the lion's den, and some received back their dead. But we don't talk about those last people in the last five verses where it says, and some went about in sheepskin, and some went died in case, and some were sawn in two. Why, why would some be willing to live a life in case, sheepskin, and, and be sawn in two? Because they believed they were citizens of a better place. And at the end of the day, y'all, we don't believe that we're citizens of a better place. What we believe is we are people who are called to bring a message. But that's not what Yeshua came. That's not what Jesus said. He said the kingdom is at hand. And the kingdom is at hand had a message to it, but that wasn't all that is. And so when you boil down Christianity to a message, you don't want to lose the, the goods and the comforts of what I call this false kingdom of the earth. This is a false kingdom. It's not a real kingdom. Why? Because it's going to get burned. And yeah. you have too many whites who benefit from the false kingdom 
that they want to do everything else. Hey, young rich young ruler. Man, I kept these commandments. I did all these things. Okay, sell it. Get to the poor. So I, I tell people, I tell anybody, sell what you have. Reconcile it. We have yet to see that. You can't point in history where, where people have actually reconciled the sins of the past done against uh, black folks across the globe. But I guarantee you, once you see it, you'll, you'll see the outpour of heaven. Yeah. And it, whether it happened in our lifetime, if... The world continues to go on and Christ doesn't come back. It will happen in somebody's lifetime. And they're going to experience the glory that the world has never seen. Yeah. All right. I want to close with, this is kind of a personal question. Um, yeah. The thing that the thing that drew me to your book is that I'm white. My son is black. I have a Middle Eastern daughter. Mm-hmm. Dad to dad, what do I need to know about raising a black son? that I'm not mm. going to be able to understand firsthand. That's good. Yeah, I would say friends who have been in your position, you're going to be mindful of the double tension. The double tension of he's, he's going to grow up under your culture and what you think is best for him. And that's fine. But you're going to have the pressure of attention to not, you shouldn't let him think that the culture you're presenting before him is his culture, right? Even mm-hmm. though it's loving, even though you're caring for him, what happens is um, dads and your mom and dads in your position tend not to focus on the cultures that the cultural tools that they should, they should understand to navigate society. So say for instance, yes, you do love them, but the world doesn't, <laughs> you know, like there, there is, a, there is a skin element, a skin color. There is history to that. Right. So he, he, he has to know about the history. He has to know about the navigation. He has to understand that there's still like these prejudices and things like that. He has to know that there are going to be expectations of him, good or bad to know certain figures and movies and history. He has to know that. And, and, and what I see people do sometimes is kind of stick their head in the sand and say, well, as long as we love them, it's good. No, because unless you're going to be treat your son like Waterboy, Bobby Boucher, and just keep him in your house outside of, you know, out of real society, he got to be able to navigate society. And society is going to have different expectations uh, for him. And what you want to do is train him to be able to use those expectations as tools and not either be oppressed or shamed because he is naive of those, mm. right? Mm. So there, you know, I tell people, you got to see reading about, you know, anything from Malcolm X, Angela Davis, to MLK, Carter G. Woodson, to Queen Zinga, Nelson Mandela. Uh, you know, you got to see reading those things. At, they're not indoctrination. These are tools he must understand. To, that the, that the society is going to want him to navigate, and he can't run from it. Right. You can't run from it. It's, it's like David. You can't run from that. You can't ignore the bear taking your sheep. You got to go track it down and kill it. That's what David said. He didn't run from it. And that's what I see a lot of dads do. They just try to run from it and create a uh, a subculture bubble, and it never works out. It eventually catches up to him, and it, it actually creates a tension between that father and son, mother. Uh, and son and or daughter in the long run because they go, why didn't you tell me or prepare me? So that's probably the biggest thing I could say. 
right. Well, thank you. All right. Um, well, AD, I want to thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. Again, the book is yep. Permission to be Black, My Journey with Jay-Z and Jesus. I think it came out in February, February of this year. Yep. For me personally, reading it as an outsider, I, I, it helped me understand some perspectives that I wouldn't be able to get otherwise. So I want to thank you for that. I mean, I know I'm not your primary audience, but just as a secondary outsider yep. audience, uh, it was it was helpful for me and my own thinking.